Welcome to the History of the Barbarians podcast. I am Josh Hirschman, and today we have episode five of our podcast, but it is a much different format. Since we are in the thick of the first season looking into the Goths, I wanted to discuss the usage of the word Goth in many contexts. It has been a mystery to me how and why the term Goth was used to describe cathedrals in France, artwork in Italy, alternative-looking musicians in the 80s, and in literature for centuries, and in particular, horror stories. A couple of driving questions that I want to answer are, how does the Gothic horror novel relate to our Goths of antiquity? What makes the piece of literature Gothic, and what does this branding of groups of people mean for society? So to help me answer these questions, I am joined today by a teacher of literature and someone who has written a Gothic horror novel. I welcome the author of Ten Mile Creek, Kane Macbeth, to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks, Josh, uh, and thanks for having me on the podcast. And looking forward to it. Now, please just give a little background about yourself and about your novel. Sure. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a teacher. Uh, I've taught literature and writing from seventh grade all the way up to seniors in high school over the last 20-odd years. Uh, I also write fiction, uh, mostly, a little bit of other things here and there, but I finally got around to completing and publishing my first novel, which, as you mentioned, is, is Ten Mile Creek. One of the things that we want to look at uh, in our discussion here today is uh, what makes a piece of literature gothic? That's a good question because like, there's a huge disconnect between when we look at the barbarians and, and, and the Visigoths and then what we see today, most people think of as gothic or the goth subculture, um, the pale-skinned you know, stereotype, dark hair nose ring, all that good stuff. So I guess in between there, that's where the kind of the Gothic literature somehow bridges those two. Now, I'm not an expert in the subject at all here, but uh, you know, feel free to correct me. But I believe the influential stylings of the Visigoths began to appear in European architecture around the 12th century uh, as the Catholic Church began to build cathedrals and monasteries. And this new style of architecture became known as Gothic with elements like the, uh, the pointed arch and the flying buttresses or buttresses, I don't know what the plural of that is. <laughs> and of course, those creepy gargoyles. But it wasn't really until the 18th century that the term Gothic was applied to literature. Um, few romantic writers at the time, mid-1700s, began to explore the dark side of romanticism. Uh, many times these stories were set in Gothic castles and featured supernatural elements and sympathetic monsters. And the genre of Gothic literature kind of continued from there. At its core, Gothic literature deals with some manifestation of evil from the past and its attempt to disrupt the present. Uh, this evil could be in the form of something supernatural, like a spirit, uh, something physical, like a vampire, something even psychological, like mental illness. Uh, Gothic fiction explores psychological terror, mystery, dark journeys, ancestral curses. Uh, and more than likely, there's some old structure like a castle or house, complete with secret passageways at the center of all of it. And so the, uh, the genres kind of evolved over the years. Um, European authors like Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker, of course, well-known for Frankenstein and, and Dracula. Um, then you had the, the Penny Dreadfuls, which featured vampires and werewolves. And then the American authors contributed to Gothic fiction. Uh, and of course, Mr. Poe being the most influential, uh, he was really the first to kind of make mental illness the key focus in many of the stories, uh, while keeping with the traditions of terror and the supernatural. Uh, there's the Lovecraftian brand of horror, uh, later on, Shirley Jackson, who wrote The uh, Haunting of Hill House, Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, and of course, Mr. Stephen King. So then you get to the 20th century. Now you have Gothic fiction appearing in film, which branches off into the horror genre. Uh, you have Gothic themes and styles begin to appear in forms of, of pop culture like music and fashion. 
And so here you go from the Visigoths all the way to Robert Smith in what? Three minutes. And as you're talking there, I was thinking uh, about Disney movies. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Maleficent. Yes. What do you think it says about uh, culture that little kids are really kind of gravitating towards even these, or at least Disney is gravitating towards these types of stories and putting some sort of twist on it? Well, you know, a great story is a great story, and I think a great story has certain truths, and certain truths are universal. And so here you have these stories that have been around forever, and Disney puts their own spin on it. But I think the reason why they were attractive to people 200 years ago or, or less could be the same reason why they're attractive today. I guess it just says something about us as a, as a culture, as people. I don't know. It's a, good, it's a good point. It's a good point. So that leads us to our next question, really. Why do people like a good horror novel? You know, there's many theories as to why people enjoy horror stories, gothic horror stories. I believe that they're cathartic maybe in some way. Uh, they allow us on some level to deal with the horrors of real life on some safe level. Uh, I read an article a while back when Walking Dead really became a mainstream hit that zombies represent maybe on some subconscious level the problems that we face in life. I mean, you can see you know several of them in the distance making their way slowly towards us. Uh, others are right on our heels, commanding our full attention. And any single zombie is, you know, fairly easy to stop. But it's that swarm that makes us feel like, you know, in life we can never truly rest. And when we do have those moments of peace, we're always anticipating the next outbreak on the horizon. Now, so even though most of us have, have never really held back a pack of walkers, uh, we can all relate to that desperate feeling, um, you know, watching others kill zombies, somehow making it easier for us to face our problems. So what makes a good horror novel? I suppose, like, you know, the same elements that make any good novel, three-dimensional characters who are well-developed and feel authentic, uh, an interesting story that takes us for a ride without letting us know exactly where we're headed, and, of course, that particular depth that allows the reader to somehow relate to the character's journey and the conflicts that he or she faces. You know, on top of all these essential elements, though, I think quality horror kind of creeps into that place inside of ourselves that we like to hide away, and it kind of makes itself at home and kind of forces us to watch, you know, to understand some dark side of truth that makes us uncomfortable. And of course, these truths can be different for different people, and not all horror has the same goal, but I think the best examples find these common experiences and, and really exploit them. And that's not to say, like, suspense-ridden horror film that makes you jump out of your seat isn't fun. Um, you know, a rush of adrenaline in a safe place, I think, is good for us, but I think the best horror doesn't rely on these cheap tricks. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of like the gratuitous gore, like the Saw franchise. It has its place, but like a film like Blair Witch Project, which is one of my favorites, scares the hell out of me every time I watch it because it's not what is seen on frame that makes it scary. It's what you can't see. And our imaginations kind of fill in the blanks. You know, you probably relate to a time when you were a kid having to go down to the old unfinished basement to, to get something or maybe go up to the attic. I had an old house growing up and we had an attic. And man, that was more terrifying to me than any slasher flick that I ever saw on HBO. So when we, we talk about uh, goth and gothic literature, one subgenre of gothic literature is Southern Gothic literature, which I have some familiarity with, but uh, enlighten us what the actually mean. What, what does it mean to say it's a Southern Gothic novel or Southern Gothic story? Yeah, it's interesting. Southern Gothic. When I first heard that term, I kind of, wow, Southern Gothic, that's kind of a strange phrase, you know. Um, but it, it's a subgenre of American fiction that's primarily set in the South, dealing with Southern characters and Southern themes. 
Uh, you have authors like William Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, uh, even Harper Lee and, and Anne Rice are considered like Southern Gothic writers, which is at first was kind of difficult for me to connect a book like To Kill a Mockingbird to, to horror novels. But when you look at a character like a Boo Radley and you see the Gothic trope of the sympathetic, uh, quote, villain, just like Frankenstein's creature and Hunchback of Notre Dame, even Gollum from Lord of the Rings. You know, if you look at like William Faulkner, and to my knowledge, he never wrote about vampires or zombies, but he did write about the dark side of romanticism and how it dealt with the South and Southern themes. Um, you had, you know, the gruesome realization in A Rose for Emily uh, at the very end there, that, that kind of gruesome twist, uh, the dissolution with family and faith and the sound of the fury uh, and that morbid uh, journey. And, and as I lay dying are all like certain, they share these thematic elements with, with Gothic fiction. So in your novel, would you connect it to a Southern Gothic genre or would you just kind of with some of the ideas and plots going on in your novel uh, without giving away too much in terms of uh, plot spoilers, but uh, would you classify as Gothic or would you classify it as Southern Gothic? Yeah, no, I'm not Southern Gothic. I don't think I'd be authorized to do that. I'm not Southern and haven't lived in the, in the South. I don't share that experience, but it, but it is Gothic. And it's interesting because I, I never really considered it a, a gothic novel. And, you know, you kind of brought to me when you invited me on the podcast that you, you felt it was gothic and you were exactly right. I mean, it has all the, all the major thematic elements of a, of a gothic novel. But I actually, you know, I kind of I kind of set out to write more of um, I'm a story of, of, a, of a man who's kind of researching his ancestral um, homestead and people that came before him. You know, I think we all reach a point sometime in our life when we suddenly care about where we came from. You know, 20 years ago, I could have cared less, you know, who my ancestors were. And all of a sudden I hit 40 and it made all the difference. And so in my own ancestral pursuit, I was able to locate all the burial places of all these people going way back to, in some cases, the Revolutionary War. And it was almost like collecting trading cards. I'd be able to find, you know, all their grave sites and take pictures. And I'm like, okay, I got this one. And I got that one. And there was this one I couldn't find. And it, it just really didn't make any sense because I, it, it was my third great-grandmother I, I knew where all her siblings and her kids were buried, her parents and grandparents, um, her husband. But, of course, I could not find where she was buried. And, and I still don't, by the way. And it, it's really strange. And that's a whole other story. But in some way, I had to know. I had to maybe take a break from this obsession. And so I kind of had this, I don't know, this weird image in my head. And I kind of worked backwards from that as a way of maybe in a fictional way explaining what happened to my third great-grandmother, Lydia, and that story kind of came about and it became kind of a gothic horror story. So it was never really my intent. But in the story, much like my own experience, um, you know, this, this man inherits, in his case, he inherits this house that belonged to his family from pre-Revolutionary War time. And he ends up moving his family over the summer to spend the summer out in the middle of nowhere in the Pennsylvania wilderness. And when he's out there, you know, he goes in like I was, not caring at all about where he came from. And he finds a cemetery on the property and he begins to walk around these gravestones and see these names. And he begins to wonder about the stories of these people. And he kind of becomes obsessed with learning, learning about them. And, and, and there's one particular relative that's not buried in the cemetery. And he becomes obsessed with finding out why. But then the Gothic part of it, I mean, it does center around this kind of creepy, old, historic home. Um, there are supernatural elements to it. Um, there are elements of, of past sins or past evils trying to come through present. And then and there's some of the more modern Gothic themes of, of mental illness and the way we struggle with, with our own demons. So 
in many ways, I ended up writing a gothic uh, horror novel without even intending to. So in the end, you know, the book ended up kind of, you know, being this combination or at least owing a lot to two of my favorite stories, Fall of the House of Usher and The Shining, both of which, when I think about it, are perfect examples of, of gothic horror stories. And I never really thought how much the two of them had in common with each other. But it's just strange how sometimes these things work out and come through when you're kind of trying to achieve one goal and then a completely different result comes up. So what do you think this application of the name goth to literature, architecture, and even the subcultures led by Robert Smith from The Cure means for the legacy of the goths? Uh, what do you think it says about the barbarian peoples or even the people that, who apply the term to these various areas? So I'm thinking about ideas and terms that people sometimes use as when they say things like Greek pillars to describe pillars in front of a home, southern gentlemen to describe a man from Alabama, Midwestern work ethic to describe a hard worker. Uh, from Ohio. What do you think it says about this kind of application of names of a people or place? Yeah, oh, that's interesting because, you know, we we were just talking about how like historically it kind of connected just from the way that the architecture kind of became the setting of a lot of these, these stories, these dark side of, of romanticism, which kind of turned into Gothic literature. But in a way too, you know, you're talking about barbarians and you're talking about this idea and I know your podcast deals with the, the misunderstanding um, of, of what a barbarian really is, but that was kind of useful, I think, for a lot of people in power at the time and during the civilizations to paint these outsiders as being grotesque and, and, and you know, uncouth and uncivilized. And so here you have a situation where these, these books are popping up, which I'm guessing maybe the church didn't quite like, you know, here are these books dealing with dark themes and evil and um, the supernatural and, and struggling with the evil side of ourselves, which um, you could see as grotesque and you could see as uncouth and, and maybe uncivilized. And even today, I mean, it's no secret to anyone who knows me that, that Stephen King is a huge inspiration, not just because, I mean, I enjoy his stories, but I think he's a hell of a writer. And I don't know that he'll ever get, at least while he's alive, the recognition that he deserves for being an incredible storyteller and the way that he develops characters. And I think a lot of it's because he's been kind of pigeonholed into this idea that he is a horror writer, which really isn't true. A lot of his works, he, he writes a lot of science fiction. He writes a lot of literary fiction for whatever reason, you know, if you delve in, I mean, horror, horror, I, I, what Silence of the Lambs is probably the only horror movie I can think of that won best picture. It, it's still this idea when you are willing to deal with the dark side of, of ourselves or the dark side of society, it's kind of seen as uncivilized. And so I kind of see that connection there as well. One thing I do notice that is uh, a bit ironic about the usage of the term goth uh, is this dark haired kind of emotional 80s subgenre uh, of, of a gothic person. Uh, the goths themselves appeared no way like that. Uh, they were blonde hair. They were tall. They weren't a bunch of Tim Burton's riding on horses. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> So that this idea of the Gothic subculture is directly derivative of this idea of these dark cathedrals with the gargoyles and this dark spirit that, uh, that the powers that be at the time didn't like and didn't want um, uh, this, this, the, the architecture to look like anymore once the, the Renaissance came along. And uh, as things moved on from artwork, artwork advanced, they wanted uh, they get rid of these darker themes and it just kind of took on from there, which is not representative of the actual goths themselves. They were quite a different people, people that were known for a zest for life and being uh, strong, good looking, very blonde haired 
people that on many ways show no resemblance to the, the ideas of the goth culture, architecture, uh, the literature that we're talking about. Well, so kind of like that game, you know, we'd play as kids, um, well, before the internet, right? When you had nothing else to do, like telephone, right? And you get in a big circle and somebody would start to say whatever story. And by the time you got to the end, it was completely different. And so it kind of reminds me of that because, yeah, they had their own influence, which, you know, evolved to something else, which evolved to something else. And, uh, and even today, like the Gothic subculture really has nothing to do with even the romantic Gothic literature, um, other than the fact that maybe you could see it's dark and brooding in some, some respect of that. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a lot of Gothic and kind of his, I don't know, the way that we've kind of romanticized him from, from our vantage point was that he was also this dark and brooding. I think he probably was in some respect because he dealt with mental illness and dealt with drug and alcohol abuse. But I think it's kind of this... Um, um, romanticism that, you know, you can be this dark and brooding and, you know, kind of quite introverted person. And, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, and I think it's probably no mistake then that, that you see people today kind of gravitate um, to that anti-society um, type of, of stereotype. What is your favorite Poe story and why? You had mentioned House of Usher earlier. Yeah, no, and, and that is my favorite one, actually. Um, I like a lot of his stuff, but Paul the Husfusher is just a masterpiece to me. Um, and it probably has to deal with a lot of the fact that, I mean, I think in all respect, we deal with our own mental illness. And I'm not here to say that I'm, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, um, psychotic or anything. But we deal with our own bouts of depression and we deal with our own demons. And it's, and it's hereditary, you know, and I, and I see elements that my parents had in me. Um, you know, I see elements of myself in my children as well. And the fall of the house of Usher, I mean, here you have this, you know, the story of, of a guy who's basically is guy he grew up with, hasn't seen in a long time, tells him to come out to his Gothic castle like house to, to hang out because he's just not doing too well. And so the, uh, the narrator gets there and his friend doesn't look anything like himself and he looks sick and gauntly and he pretty much broods around the house and, so, you know, he's reading stories to him and trying to get him to cheer up. And then all of a sudden, this strange woman's rocking around the house. He finds out it's his friend's sister, and uh, her name's uh, Madeline, um, or Madeline, which, again, the whole idea of mad and Madeline and that whole wordplay. You know, and then it goes to, to pretty crazy stuff. And uh, the only way to stop this madness, the only way to stop this continuing mental illness to further offspring was to let the family tree die. And so um, by burying her alive... And then Dine himself was going to, to do that. So I, I love that kind of that double meaning because it was the fall of the House of Usher. Because, again, the house itself wasn't doing well. There's a, a giant crack through it. If you've seen the Roger Corman version of Fall of the House of Usher, which, you know, it takes its liberties. But in some ways, I think it's very true thematically. You know, you can see the entire house um, in its 1960s special effects kind of implode upon itself and, and burn up. And so the house itself has fallen, but so does the family. I'd like to ask you what your favorite Gothic novel is. Well, I mean, I already mentioned The Shining, so that's in the forefront, which definitely is a Gothic novel. Um, you know, I'd have to think of that longer. I'll just go with The Shining for now because it's right there. Um, again, you wouldn't think of The Shining because it doesn't have castles and it doesn't have, you know, vampires and, and uh, any of those. But, but you do have an old structure, uh, an old structure that could be cursed or is at least haunted, um, where you have um, sins of the past coming through and trying to destroy the present. And then you have people that are, you know, like Danny, who's supernaturally very sensitive. And um, when he comes to this particular place, gives strength to uh, to these, the supernatural that exists in this hotel. 
And then you have madness and ideas of, of, of uh, like for instance, you know, Jack Torrance going off and trying to kill his family. What I think is really interesting is some Gothic um, work always talk about these hidden passages um, in these houses, just like the old Scooby-Doo's, you know, you'd always discover that secret passage. But like in the fall of the House of Usher, there are these catacombs in this home, um, which I always saw as, as some symbolic of like our own inside our subconscious that we can't quite get to these secret passages in our own minds. And then you have now in the original King novel, you had these hedge, what they call them, topiaries, these hedge animals. Um, but then Kubrick, I think really saw more in the story than King did. Kubrick took it a step further and he actually made a hedge maze, but they're just two great examples. I think of, of more modern Gothic literature. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on the podcast today. I've, Really enjoyed our conversation. I thought uh, we've got a lot out of it. Uh, it was interesting kind of trying to connect literature to a uh, early millennial uh, culture, Germanic culture. <laughs> right now in our story, we're based by the Black Sea. Uh, but uh, is there a way that anyone can uh, get in touch with you on social media platforms or a way they can check out your book? Yeah, um, the, the Kindle edition of, of Tim Al Creek uh, ebook is available right now in the Kindle store. Um, the, per, the first print edition will be available later this summer. Uh, and you can, you can feel free to contact me on, on Twitter, uh, at Macbeth Kane, or send me an old fashioned, uh, email at, uh, Macbeth Kane at gmail.com. Uh, and I would like to vouch for the book. I have read it, uh, in terms of, uh, a, a book that'll keep you mo- turning the pages and keep you moving. It's definitely one of those. And I do not read horror novels very often. Uh, but this is one that definitely did keep me interested in uh, my interest in uh, a lot of the different themes that we talked about here today on the podcast. So definitely check out that book on Amazon and like to thank everyone for listening. Once again, if you would like to get in contact with me or leave some feedback for the show, check us out at history of the barbarians on Twitter or our Facebook page. And I'll try to put a link for the book on the Facebook page, maybe. And I will see you next week when we get back to our Gothic story, where our Goths, again, are in the Black Sea and are going to take part in the crisis of the third century. Again, if you'd like to leave us some feedback, please see us on History of the Barbarians Twitter and Facebook page and let us know. Subscribe if you like the show. And we'll see you next week when we get back to the crisis of the third century.